Welcome, everyone. New Geneva Academy is hosting a Shepherds Conference on October 6th and 7th here in Bloomington, Indiana, and I'm sure that you know a pastor or a church officer who should be there. Now, if you fit that description of being a pastor or a church officer, then absolutely you should come. But if you don't, you should tell your local pastor or church officer to come. The conference is titled The Good Soldier, and the whole thing is aimed at helping shepherds be good soldiers for Jesus Christ. Now, we all like the idea of a pastor or an elder being a good soldier for Christ in theory. But when it comes time for actual soldiering, that means there's conflict. And when there's conflict, uh, the sheep generally don't like it very much. We find conflict to be scary and scandalous. And so, for the next few episodes, we are going to be talking about conflict. The conversation today is with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. What would you say is the difference between being pugnacious and being a good soldier? I should say that in Scripture, in 1 Timothy, and then also in Titus, it says that overseers, elders, are not to be pugnacious. Now, what, is, what does it mean to be pugnacious? The word pugnacious means that you are quick to argue, quarrel, or fight, that you're eager to do those things. So, a leader in the church, an elder in the church, is not supposed to be pugnacious, and yet he is supposed to be a good soldier. So how, how can those two things exist simultaneously in a man? It's interesting as you talk about being pugnacious, I was thinking about do we, have, do we know very many people who are pugnacious? I mean, is that like uh, pick a fight kind of people looking to, looking to fight, looking to quarrel? I think most people today would see any argument about a principle as being pugnacious. Mm. But that's not, I, that's not what the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul's entire ministry is making arguments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he would immediately disqualify himself. So David, go ahead. Closing of the American mind has been on my mind, and he has the quote that uh, all we're reduced to in America is, can't we all just get along? Hmm. And if you think about a world where the, the greatest common denominator is, can't we all just get along? How in the world do you have any kind of fight? What, what is that an indication of, though, for, for us to be at that point in our culture? What does that mean? I want to ask the question, okay, so we need to find out what the difference is between just making arguments and being pugnacious. But, like, we're not even there as a culture. We're where you're not allowed to disagree with anybody ever. <laughs> and so, so what does that mean about our culture? Where, where are we at? Well, I, I think it's more than just that we've lost principle. We've also just lost truth. Well, does it mean that we actually hate each other and we're not willing to talk about it? And so it's, it's that tense in the room that we're not able to talk about truth or, or what? We, we're not supposed to be interrupted from our constant state of what we understand to be peace. I wonder if it isn't more, uh, to open a conversation, I wonder if it isn't more our constant state of slumber. Hmm. We're not supposed to be interrupted from our slumber. 
And if somebody proposes something that uh, will make us react, that reaction is usually, wait, 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 you, that breaks the rules. And by slumber, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's like we're never supposed to talk about politics or religion. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. politics or religion, who was it, Tim, that you were quoting who says that's the only thing worth talking about? Chesterton says that's the only thing worth talking about. And Mm -hmm. so what makes those so those two subjects so controversial is that they, they have they have conviction mm-hmm. there is there is principle there there are absolutes that people hold there are truths that people hold mm-hmm. and when you present them everybody else is like oh you have an expectation of me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and every conflict i think has behind it well, as I'm thinking about this and talking about it, it seems like every conflict has behind it some kind of failure and expectation. Well, okay, so think, for instance, about the issue that, that Scripture says that there was a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his time, in which they said, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, now, your father isn't Abraham, your father is the devil, <laughs> and you do his works. Yeah. Okay, well, that's conflict. Oh, yeah. But if we believe Jesus, that the world is separated into those who have Abraham as their father and those who have the devil, and that it really is dichotomous, mm-hmm. then what we have to believe today is that uh, there is a sweet peace between children of Abraham and children of the devil, all right? Mm-hmm. Because if we all want to get along and be nice— and be at peace with each other, there must be this wonderful synchronicity (laughs) that has developed in the Western world over the last 2,000 years that allows us, as children of Abraham, children of God, sons of God, to be at peace. And if we live in a way that is enlightened, progressive, evolved, then we will be able to be agents of reconciliation in this culture. This is absolutely what the whole uh, movement of the Kellerites and Redeemer and all that stuff in the Reformed world is, is it's this idea that Christians have been cantankerous or hostile or Mm. obtuse or... Fundamentalist. Yeah, well, discontextualized, Mm. you know, if there is such a word. And that what we need is the enlightened, uh, progressive... uh, In the city for the city. In the city for the city, grace uh, kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And that that will put us at peace with children of Satan in such a way that they will be willing to become children of God. In other words, Mm -hmm. the best evangelism is the evangelism that establishes the most in common. Mm -hmm. Friendship. And per, is perceived to be ironic. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that it is true that the world has evolved by God's plan to the point where children of Satan and children of God are able to live in peace. And after all, the Bible does say, insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Right. And so let's just assume we've, arrived at that place. Okay. Now we're going to observe a discussion between someone who makes no claim to be a son of God and someone who claims to be a son of God. Okay. And we're going to watch their conversation. 
And what we will notice is that if the Christian, the Son of God, ever makes any statement that gets at first things, mm-hmm. Politics that gets, or religion. well, that gets at God, at mm-hmm. God's law, at the righteousness of Jesus Christ, at the eternity of the soul, that the soul exists forever, at the distinction between man and animal, Mm -hmm. that man bears the image of God, that God named the human race man or Adam, not Mm -hmm. Eve. Mm -hmm. Anything having to do with any of those things, sexuality, male, female, anything, will be viewed as being pugnacious on the part of the Christian. Now let's go to the man that makes no claim to be a son of God. Mm-hmm. What would be true of his contribution to the conversation? He's, he's not going to be bothered about bringing up anything. He will constantly promote his own mm-hmm. idolatry. Right. So I sat down with a relative the other day, or he came in and sat down with several of us, mm-hmm. And he had been doing something. He came in and sat down, and he wanted to be friends. And he said to me, I said, hey, what have you been doing? And he said, well, I've been watching the hearings, you know, Hmm. the January 6th hearings. And I said, oh, really? You know, and he said, yeah, it's just so sad. Hmm. Well, immediately, we know what he's saying. Yeah. Okay, what he's saying is the wickedness of Donald Trump, the wickedness of Republicans, the insensitivity, the the cruelty. It's so sad. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a black police officer, a man crying, and they take pictures and spread it all over the Internet. The whole world is seeing pictures of this man emoting publicly. Mm. And so... And then you move on to the issue of talking about shopping. Well, immediately, he's going to make statements about what kinds of things he shops, what kind of bags he carries those things in, (laughs) what stores he goes to, whether he eats meat, whether he doesn't eat meat, whether or not it's, uh, uh, you know, whether it's free range chickens or, or factory chickens and eggs. Yeah. Now, here's my point. If anybody today thinks that there is a rule which is equally applied under the law Hmm. to both pagans and Christians that we are to avoid politics and religion, they're a fool. Yeah, they're insane. It is that one side is absolutely free to pursue its idolatry, its wickedness, it's defiance of God. That's the ordering principle. Mm-hmm. And the Christian is supposed to, quote, love them, unquote. Mm-hmm. They would say that's the Christian's job because they know Jesus was love. Mm-hmm. Christians would say that's the job because they've listened to Tim Keller about the best method of evangelism. Well, they, they want to get along with their relatives at the... At the yeah, end. I mean, but make no mistake, it's not an equal application of the law of getting along. Right. One side wins, the other loses. Now, I'm not saying that because I want us to be aggressive in that situation. What I actually did was I did not respond at all to him. Mm -hmm. I sat there thinking to myself, 
could I open up his eyes to see how oppressive he's being to us right now? Mm. Because I think he would have been sensitive to it if I'd spent the time. Yeah. Okay. And I think he actually would have cared. But it would have been the first time in one year's time that anybody had shown him that he had actually made decisions about eternity Mm -hmm. and that those decisions had their inexorable fruit Mm -hmm. and that every word he says is simply the outspeakings of his godlessness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, are you with me? Yep. And so the question then becomes, in all of our lives, in our collegial relationships, in the classroom, at Bell Tire when we go to get our car worked on, when we're hanging out at the fence with our neighbor. Mm -hmm. The Christian is to be quiet. And by that, I don't mean that he's not to say anything. What I mean is he's to say nothing. Mm. If he says anything, he's violated the rules because the rules are that Christians are ironic when they gag God. Where did we get those rules? I mean, why do we have them? I, I acknowledge you're right. Well, I think a lot of it is that people perceive the majority to be oppressors and the minority to be oppressed. Mm-hmm. And people perceive whiteness as majority. They perceive Christianity as majority. There has been a relentless attack by movies, videos, yeah. music, Okay. Upon the Christian majority, yeah. they haven't defined it. Mm-hmm. It's no. oppressive. It's hateful. It's it's stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I do with this guy because I regularly engage him. A couple of years ago, I went on a walk with him on Lake Michigan, and I said to him, "I want to ask you: Do you really want to gag me as a brother in this family and as a fellow citizen of the United States of America?" And he couldn't understand my question. I said, "Well." I said, I am opposed to homosexuality. It is destructive. Mm -hmm. It harms the people who commit it. It is a perversion. It destroys families. It destroys bodies. And I know this from loving my entire life and ministering to people caught up in homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Well, this man has a family member who is completely committed to homosexuality, you know? And I said, I am not asking you whether you will embrace my view. I'm saying, do you want to gag me so that I can say nothing in our country anymore? Do you Mm -hmm. want to remove me from this country? And I kept asking him and asking. He didn't want to answer. Right, right. And I just said, you're avoiding the question. The question isn't whether or not I'm right or wrong. Right. The question is, do you want me to shut up? Do you want to silence me with your laws? Mm. And it was interesting. He went on for about 20 minutes and he finally, I wouldn't let him not answer. And he finally said, no, I don't. I didn't then open up to him the consequences of that, mm-hmm. which none of them he'll like. Right. And so I don't know. David, you want to say well, something? Well, I was thinking about Lucas' question about where did it come from. And of course, uh, we think about ourselves and the time we live in as being different than past times and that we have it harder or more difficult than other people have had it. And where did this come from in other times? Well, if you think about God's people in the new Testament, 
they were also gagged. Even the disciples didn't want Jesus to say things. Hmm. And then there were lots of people that were angry that he was saying things, and there are lots of people who hmm. were thinking about what his words would bring on the Jews, oh, God's people. Right. Yeah. And so today we have the same reality existing. Well, what would we call the Jews of Jesus' day who were saying, don't bring your your teachings onto us? Mm-hmm. That would be the the half-Christians or the worldly Christians or the... Uh, well, evangelicals, I mean... Well, th- th- the the Christians who say who who literally look at it and they don't want to they just want to have comfort. Well, yeah. we want to have comfort and we want to have our grace. We want to have our good grace and we want to have comfort. And so we want to make sure that we that our brothers and sisters. You know, I didn't. I I was thinking as you were talking about the exchange with your relative. Does he make profession of faith or oh, not? No. Okay, but how many? <laughs> well, yes, he does. And I could describe his faith to you. It's very, very oppressive. It is the faith of every media elite. It it is absolutely conceited and arrogant and democratic and enlightened and progressive and oppressive, oppressive, oppressive. And there's not a thought in his brain that he is anything other than God's gift to the world with his commitments. So... That is his religion, and it oozes out of him every chance he gets, not because he's aggressive, but because he is a perfect representation of the idolatry and hatred of God and of his law of our entire world today. Well, I was thinking about, more specifically, people who profess faith in God and yet would still want to say the same things to you who profess to be Christians, who still want you to shut up about homosexuality and right. shut up about all these other things, because uh, a lot of them might have the same real belief system that this man has, but also a lot of them may not, but they may not have thought about the implications of what, they are, what they're saying when they say, don't talk about that. We don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about truth. Well, right, and you know, I've also been thinking about the kind of person who would maybe agree with us on questions of like saying that homosexuality is a sin and being opposed to homosexual marriage, but they would want to be, they would say things like the way you talk about it or the, the way mm-hmm. you go about it is what's causing the problem. Well, but that, but that um, makes me think of Keller again. And when yeah. he was talking about that, I was trying to think, what is the right way to describe this? You know, we used to talk about building postmodern bridges to get the postmoderns to cross and stop being what they were mm. as postmoderns. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's worse than that today. It's almost like we're having, you know, like we used to, the people used to have parties and they would show movies and then there would be evangelistic movie nights mm-hmm. where they would bring their friends over. But it's like we're having... Uh, like evangelistic porn nights mm-hmm. is is kind of how it's gotten to. It's where we bring people. It it is that bad. Yeah, it is so far from faith, and it is so toward worldliness and godlessness yeah. and rejection of God that it's just like crazy. So we're in the kitchen, and uh, my brother-in-law Mark, who just retired from being CEO at Tyndale House, he said to me that he had. Uh, recently been impressed with the fact that my dad's book, Winter Flight, was prescient, okay? And Mark and I have had tension throughout our lives 
as his father and my father had tension, actually. It's a second generation thing. Hmm. Um, it's not overt with Mark and me. It's, it wasn't overt with dad and Ken. But the thing that dad and I, well, the thing that my, ta my dad taught me is that things are not getting better. Mm-hmm. and that sin exists, that men are depraved, and that that depravity has a certain direction and a certain endpoint. Tell us, you know, it will cause this and this and this, and that we should actually read the clouds, and that we should actually anticipate where we're headed, and that we should actually blow the horn. Mm -hmm. Mr. Taylor was absolutely opposed to ever blowing the horn when my father wrote winter flight which is about organ harvesting mm -hmm. okay and having a time that the government assigns you to die mm -hmm. and not allowing people with hemophilia to get pregnant mm -hmm. and hemophiliacs who are somehow produced then you have to hide your treatment you know that's the whole scheme but he wrote it back in 1976 when it came out my father-in-law Ken Taylor, who was a good friend of my dad's, was just like, this is ridiculous. Mm. Then 15 years later, 20 years later, Mark did not know this, but my dad, father-in-law, Ken Taylor, came to me. This is after my dad passed away. And he said to me, your father was amazingly prescient. Hmm. It was actually, he used the same word that Mark used with me yesterday. Oh, wow. mm. And I didn't say this to Mark, but what you always want to say to these evangelicals that tell you that it's the way you're saying things that's wrong mm -hmm. is to say to them, look, is, is my goal to wake people up mm -hmm. and to warn them, or is my goal to present myself in such a way that I look good? Right. And, and really, what Tim Keller has been a master of doing is looking good. Mm -hmm. But nobody can say he woke anybody up. Right. Or, or, but they would. What they would say is, but he had 5,000 people in his church in Manhattan. He woke some more people up. I've had people say this to me. Then you'll ever dream of having you, he, you know, and, and they'll just, they'll just be, you know, about how. And what I want to say is nobody is prepared for battle. Mm. Nobody wants battle. Everybody is quite happy to go quietly into the night. Mm -hmm. And if, and so now we're at a point where we know China is harvesting organs from criminals. I mean, we've known this for years. Mm -hmm. We know they forced women to have abortions. Mm -hmm. In other words, all the warnings that have been given through the years have proven to be true. <laughs> Please. And yet I don't see dad, if he were alive today or Mark saying to me, you know, something we should have listened to you. Mm -hmm. I have never had anybody say that to me in my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is the point where there's a demilitarized zone between Christians and pagans yep. is endlessly shifting mm -hmm. to greater and greater wickedness 
Mm-hmm. And anybody who observes that demilitarized zone and warns what's coming points it out, yeah. is the aggressor, the pugnacious one, the sinner. Mm-hmm. And anybody who blurs it over and, and like rips open the pillow and shakes all the feathers in the air so you can't see what you're doing, they're a paragon of virtue. So the real issue with Tim Keller is the Apostle Paul, when he went in the Areopagus, sharpened the scalpel as sharp as it could get to address them. He used their poet. He used their pride. He said ignorance in the past. God's overlooked such ignorance. Now he demands that all people everywhere repent. Mm-hmm. Tim Keller uses the same gift set, I think, yeah. that the Apostle Paul had. Mm-hmm. Tim Keller's gifts are mind-boggling of rhetoric, of sensitivity, of cultural awareness. Uh, but he uses it to, sh- to dull the scalpel mm-hmm. of the word of God. He's always dulling. And therefore, he is viewed as a paragon of gospel ministry. Mm-hmm. And if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he would be universally excoriated by the very people that think that they're gospelers, that they're... In other words, it's hopeless. It's like he he tries to engage in conflict, but make you feel like he's not. Uh, if if you can even say that he's engaging in conflict, I mean, I don't. I guess I've never listened to a Tim Keller sermon, but I mean, there has to be something. There has to be some tension. Otherwise, it'd be so. Boring well, the that... tension is. Oh, I have a friend who. So he's been at Redeemer. He's not there anymore, but he was there over a decade. One night he called me up and he said, you know something? He said, all the sins that Tim Keller speaks of are psychological. Okay. And he said he has no doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. And I, this is an astute man. And I think that that is a perfect description of what happens when you're avoiding conflict. And Tim Keller will what, tell. What is what? What does happen when you're avoiding conflict? Well, Everything is psychological, okay. sociological. Everything is me and you and us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's never God. Yeah. Yep. And it's never Satan. So even with hell, what Tim will do is Tim will say hell is what you choose. Mm-hmm. You know, it won't, it won't be founded in the character of God, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Although he would say it is. And so my point is... Everything today is relational. At the very beginning, you talked about how Bloom is saying, can't we all get along? And so we're talking about, yeah, nobody wants to argue anymore. But that's not actually true. Everybody is arguing who is a liberal. Mm. Everybody who isn't a Christian is arguing all the time. Everybody is enforcing their law on you, even down to the fact that you can't go through a cashier line in a supermarket without being asked that moral question, paper or plastic. Right. Okay. And make no mistake about it. There's a right and wrong choice in every tiniest part of our existence. This is why family reunions are so difficult because eating is a political statement. Food is a political statement. Cars are a political statement. Money, real estate, even down to the fact that how you play games, whether or not you, you where you know, if you're going to talk about children, you can talk about education. How do you talk about education without it being political, moral, mm. spiritual, theological? Right. And so what's really going on is when people say, can't we all get along, what they mean is, can't you Christians shut up? 
Mm -hmm. If we open our mouths, we're the aggressor. We are the oppressor. We are the sinners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is true. It's gotten to the point where Christians don't feel at liberty to let people know what they think, what they actually think at all, at all. And so what we're trying to do in our, you know, in, in our churches is just get people to talk to their neighbor and actually let them know what they think, whether neighbor or friend or coworker. Yeah, but, <laughs> okay, remember, it's not even that good. Because the fact is, if a pastor preaches a sermon which is engaged with the real world we live in, he is looked at as if he's a monster. Okay. And so it's not just stopping at the boundaries of the church. It mm -hmm. is completely in the sanctuary. Okay. Yeah. I, th I think you're exactly right, but I, I want to wait till we get into the church here in just a second. I'd, okay. I'd like to go back to a question that I asked at the beginning What's the difference? Between, so we've talked about. Okay, can I answer that? Yeah. The difference well, is. Just again, what's the difference between being pugnacious and being a good soul? Yeah, the, the difference is that a pugnacious man is concerned about himself. Mm. And it's obvious. If there's the slightest disagreement with him, the slightest insult offered, even a perceived insult, mm. he is punching back. He's attacking you. He's insulting you. He's questioning your virtue. And so, a pugnacious man is never focused on God and his truth. Even when he does focus on abortion, on homosexuality, you feel in the air that it's all about him. It's not about God. Well, that's, that's very difficult to tease out because, as I think we mentioned in a previous conversation, we always have justifications, you know. Yeah, but okay, let's take pastoral counseling. You get into a situation in counseling where all of a sudden there's tension in the air. Yeah, okay. We've all had this happen. What is that tension? It's a disagreement um, about... Yeah, but you disagree all the time in talk. Yeah, okay. But tension. Well, the tension is a power play. Mm. It's a power struggle. And all of a sudden, in that relationship, there, there are egos involved and bordering on hostility. Mm. And you feel it. You know, it's not that anybody said, you're an idiot. You know, nobody has insulted anybody, but all of a sudden there's tension. It's like all of a sudden there's uh, a rope and two sides are being pulled in, mm. in opposite directions. Okay. And you recognize that in counseling and you try to defuse it. You say something like, I'm sorry, I can sense tension here now and you asked to meet with me, and so I want to serve you. Okay. Well, the minute you say that, it destroys the tension. It's gone. Because all of a sudden, you say, how can I help you? Okay, yeah. And then they have to decide whether they want you to help them anymore. Mm -hmm. It may be that you're being too wise and saying two helpful things that they actually have been trying to keep from being said for the last 10 years in their marriage, you yeah, know? Right, right. <laughs> and so if we can recognize this in counseling, we ought to be able to recognize it when it comes to weighing whether or not a man's pugnations and should be an elder. Everybody should have experiences of talking to him where 
something was said that they thought, well, I wonder how he'll take that. And he took it with equanimity. Mm. That's the absence of pugnacity. Okay. But if pugnaciousness, pugnacity is present, he's going to go, brruh, 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 you know, mm -hmm. and you're going to go, what? And he's going to say, brruh, 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 and you're going to think about it. And you're going to think, oh, did you think I meant such and such? And he'll say, well, that's what you said, you know, and you go, um, no, I didn't mean that. Now, one time is understandable, but probably if it's a pugnacious man, you'll have a bunch of elders in the room nodding their heads up and down when they discuss a potential candidate. Mm. And they'll all have had the experience of that man making it a personal issue when they didn't intend it personally or making a mountain out of a molehill mm. that this dude grew up in a home where his father sat on him mm. every time he had an opinion from the time he was little. His father sat on him. And so he is loaded for bear for any other man that's going to sit on him. He learned his lesson and he is not going to let any man sit on him. In other words, undoubtedly, he's been oppressed mm. as a child. And so he's learned he better fight for himself because ain't nobody else going to create a space in this wide world for him. Mm. So I'm not trying to be just brutal about the nature of pugnacity in a man. But I don't want to allow you off the hook to just say, well, it's hard to make judgments. And, you know, mm -hmm. you know, are you really capable of knowing when it's about him and when it's a principle? And the fact is we are capable and elders and pastors should be men who are capable right. of making that kind of judgment. Right. Because otherwise, what on earth are we doing thinking about who shouldn't be a, and shouldn't be an elder and whether or not they're pugnacious, let alone right. greedy? Yeah, it's one of the characteristics that we're supposed to examine a man. Yeah, on. you have so to you make have to those to judgments make. because if you don't, guess what's going to happen? Your entire elders meetings are going to be taken up with that man being pugnacious. Mm. And then the pastor's going to get in trouble because it turns out that man's the church treasurer and very wealthy. And he's going to have to discipline that man. And then you got real problems because the treasurer and the richest man in the church is going to leave the church because he got on the elders board. He's pugnacious and it had to be pointed out all the time. Mm, problems. Yeah. Now, I want to say something about that. Okay. When you first asked your question, what I think is that nobody recognizes that we don't live in heaven. We aren't enlightened. We aren't progressive. We haven't evolved. We are a product of the fall. And there is nothing but relentless conflict everywhere, all the time, between everyone. So that's my premise. My premise is we're absolute idiots thinking that we can even have peace. I remember Bob Dylan saying in an interview back in about 1976, he said, this guy kept talking to him, you know, well, well, Bob, don't you think that we should be pursuing peace, peace, peace? You know, mm -hmm. went on and on and on. And Dylan kept deflecting the questions as only Dylan will do. And then finally, Dylan got irritated with him. And he said, listen, he says, you want to talk about peace? He says, here's your peace. He says, peace is the moment when you stop to reload your rifle. That's the only peace there will ever be in this world. <laughs> Wow. And I really do believe that if we have our eyes open by Scripture mm -hmm. and we believe what Scripture teaches, 
there's absolutely no peace in the world. Now, I don't mean that there aren't times of peace versus war, comparatively speaking. Okay. But even if you take a time of peace as opposed to war in a nation, yeah, okay. You're having to engage in conflict constantly to maintain that peace. Mm. And what I would really argue is so years ago I used to be a pacifist. I won't go through the whole story. We've probably already told it somewhere online anyhow. But I remember Chuck Colson saying at a conference in Wheaton and Edmund Chapel, I remember him saying, you know, the man who believes in just war is the man who believes that life is worth killing and dying for. Mm. And I say, if we really do believe in peace and we really do love it, we will be likely the man that is involved in more conflict than any other man. Okay, why? Because we're going to be able to see the conflict that is there that needs to be dealt with. Go ahead. Well, to, to prevent oppression conflict to prevent what's just going to keep building and building and building prevent we, we see it happening right now in the cities right we're, so what are we going to do we're going to stop the men who were saying no from being able to say no and what the, happens the cities what are you talking about well the big Black cities Lives, where, where they've defunded the police and oh, they're not right. letting them work and and so crimes are just skyrocketing in the cities and and so what? Nobody's there saying no. Nobody's there engaging in conflict mm -hmm. to keep from the, there from being conflict. Mm -hmm. And so now we don't have conflict with a small C, and rather we have conflict with a capital C. Right. Uh, you know, in large font. Years ago, Tim, you said your impression of Rwanda was that everyone just told lies, lies, lies to each other until one morning they decided to wake up and stop telling lies and start killing each other. And you do get that feeling in our country as well, that we're not willing to engage in the lowercase c conflict. And so, yeah, we're headed for much bigger conflicts because we're not willing to do that. It's been very helpful to me for years now. And in the book, Elders Reformed, I write about the importance of recognizing that Jethro went to his son-in-law, Moses, and said, you cannot do what you're doing mm. because you will destroy yourself and you will remove leadership from the people. You have to get help. And so they appointed, and he was sitting all day, every day, adjudicating the conflict of God's people, mm. God's people. Yeah. And so they appointed 10 for every 100, 100 for every 1,000, and then supervisors of those. Mm. And only the tough cases were brought to Moses. Mm -hmm. If you multiply that out into a church, say, of 500, that means that there are, what, 10 for every 100? So that means there are 50 people in a church of 500 men not women, men, because men are the ones to make judgments in the church and exercise discipline. Mm -hmm. And their job is what? Well, their job is adjudicating conflict. Mm. And I don't think anybody thinks in terms of elders as adjudicating conflict, right. being peacemakers. You know, I don't think anybody thinks that way. I think they think that elders are guys that make sure that people are giving enough money. Right. So yep. that you can pay the pastor. I think that's as deep as it goes. Mm -hmm. Well, once you restore the thinking of that being the necessity with the people of God, one for every 10, mm -hmm. that 
changes your whole approach to life and leadership and authority mm. and government and structures. Because then you don't have some sense of guilt that we had. You know, Tim Keller says about the husband's headship in the home. Well, the husband, yeah, he does have authority, but it's tie-breaking authority. And the whole deal on that is that what Tim Keller is saying is, if you're such an idiot that you have to, you know, break a tie and you can't defer to your wife, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're so selfish, well, then, okay, you have tie-breaking authority. Right. That's a certainly a failure. That's a very low view of responsibility and authority. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we have to realize is that there is conflict constantly. Theoretically, Christians are the ones who believe in original sin. And so we should be the ones who recognize the truth of what Pastor Bailey was just getting at. In this world of sin, conflict will be constant. And so a godly man is the one who is constantly engaged in conflict. But this doesn't mean he's being pugnacious. A pugnacious man fights to protect his own pride and perquisites. He's happy to create division if that builds his own kingdom. A godly man, on the other hand, fights for the peace and protection of Christ's church. Thanks for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and our conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Correll. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash outofourminds. Don't forget, we've got the Shepherds Conference coming up on October 6th and 7th, and you can register over at newgenevaacademy.com. Bye for now.